Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. I have an amazing guest today. I have always have amazing guests. I have Miss Sarah Ash. Sarah, thank you for being here today. No problem. <laughs> so Sarah has her her BA in her BA in English and a minor in writing from Grand Valley State University. A master's in adult education and higher education from the University of South Dakota, and she's a current doctoral student in education at the University of Southern California. She's a, an, also an associate ombuds. She has a ton of experience in here. This is why I want to pick her brain about conflict resolution and all other wonderful topics, right? Uh, worked in higher education for over 15 years. She's a professional in student conduct, also has experience as, as a director of student success, director of uh, residence life. I can keep going on and on, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, student success, um, yeah, student government, and um, and as your role, and I'm, I want to get into this, can you explain to me um, really quickly what an ombuds is for people out there who want to, that, that don't have any experience with this? Dive in. Yes. So an ombuds, the kind of brief uh, example that I give is that we help people who are dealing with some sort of conflict. So I work on a college campus, but there are multiple different types of ombuds. There's ombuds in the corporate world, in government, in healthcare, and they all kind of serve different purposes. So in my role, I am here to be a confidential person that people can come to if they're like, I've got something going on and I don't know where to start. So they can come and talk to me and I am neutral, so I'm not there to take sides or advocate for our visitors. Um, but our visitors tell me like what's going on and then I provide them with all possible options that I can see for what's best for them. I don't force any sort of solution on them, but they determine how they want to go forward. So I'm like listening to them and then providing them with either formal options or informal options to go forward, like maybe filing a complaint would be a formal option. Um, Informal option could be just having a conversation with the person and talking through what does that look like? Like how are some um, low conflict ways to have that tough conversation? So I go through many, many options with them um, and just chat with them about, okay, you're the one who's in this situation. What feels best for you? Hey, Sarah, um, I wanted to ask you a couple background questions, I guess. First, what were you born and raised and what kind of got you into this work? I mean, when you were growing up, did you know you wanted to do this kind of work? I didn't know that this work existed. Um, so born and raised in Lansing, Michigan, and I've um, hopped all over the place. Um, I'm currently in Oregon, sixth state that I've lived in. Working in higher education, there's kind of an expectation that you pop all over. Um, I personally love it. I have loved seeing all different parts of the U.S., um, but I originally when I was going to school wanted to be a counselor and was going to school for like a psychology type degree. Um, I realized while I was in school and an undergrad and was incredibly involved with um, a couple different organizations on campus and like in the state of Michigan and regionally that I was like oh my god you can actually work on a college campus and do this as a living and then got interested in higher education as a field. And so switched to wanting to do that, which is how I have the background that I do in higher education. I 
first learned about what ombuds work is when I had my assistantship um, way back when I was a baby professional in higher ed um, from an amazing mentor that I had who was telling me about um, both the student conduct work that I was like loving and learning at that time. And then she also told me about this thing called ombudsing and what that work entailed. And so ombudsing has always kind of been at the back of my mind of something that has been um, interesting to me. And I was ready to make a career change and kind of dove headfirst into ombudsing and was lucky enough to get the job that I did. So have you always good? And I think that the listeners, it's a really critical for listeners to understand this, that you're kind of a, a go-between between people that are having a conflict. When, when you are issue that they have to resolve, that they're not getting, it's not getting resolved in a way maybe that either side or one side doesn't feel as though adequately addresses the issue. When you were growing up, did you always have you always been good at learning how to deal with conflict? Do you, I, I've known you for a while, and you, you seem like you're very, very, you're very good at what you do. Um, have you always been this that way growing up? Um, so quick clarification we don't, we only um will do like so. What you're referencing is called shuttle diplomacy, right? Where one visitor is like, I can't address this directly with someone like can you kind of be that go-between we will do that um but only if the visitor requests it but helping people with conflict or talking them through like what their options are yes i think to a certain extent um i've always kind of been that person that i think like in reflecting back like my friends or colleagues would come to to be like I've got this thing going on or I've got this stuff happening at work or with my other friends. And I was always kind of that listening ear or that vault <laughs> for them. Um, and so this transition has felt just kind of natural. And I don't know why or how. I. It's funny because some people that come in are like, I hate conflict. And I'm like, no, I'm right there with you. <laughs> like, like personally, I still hate conflict, right? Like conflict, I think is scary for everyone. And I, we always try to normalize that, that conflict is a lot. Like there's, um, you know, research on conflict and kind of the cycles that you go through. And it is overwhelming. People naturally avoid it. People naturally get defensive, but there are some tips and tricks for making it easier, right? And so that's what we try to do with, visitors is just normalized like instead of thinking of of it as something scary try to just think of it as okay we've got a like let's say a miscommunication bump um and how can we resolve this it doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't some very real systemic issues going on um in some cases and that's you know a whole different topic but um but trying to talk with visitors about it's it doesn't have to be as scary as it may so, at once. So, and I'm just wanting to speak generally, like in general terms. Can you give me an example of what a uh, how do you commonly deal with strategies wise? How do you deal with conflict? What are kind of what are some of the techniques that you use strategy wise that you would give advice for somebody if they didn't have an ombuds, someone like you. What are the first steps that people need to take? Sure. Um, so 
I first always acknowledge that every situation is different, right? Like I tell people that, you know, typically I'm hearing like this much of a situation that's this big and, um, and that there's a lot of different things that come into play, right? Politics in an office, personalities that might impact, like things that I don't know about. So I can only give advice for things that have worked in the past or could work for other people and things like that. But I always kind of give that disclaimer that there's a lot that goes into conflict that I probably don't know about with like whatever situation people are coming in with. But I think one of the hardest things it's easy to say, but hard to do, right, is in a situation, like, let's say, um, let's say you had a um, conflict with your supervisor, and you were like, but they're wrong, and I'm right, like, when people get into those camps of, like, black and white and right and wrong, um, that is, like, kind of the hardest thing to get out of, and trying to talk with people about, um, okay, what, truly what are your options in this case right so we i can't force anyone to like you know have any sort of action taken and it's up to you do you want to file a formal complaint like what are your options here i think sometimes people come in looking um like looking for something right like being like i want an apology from this person realistically None of us can make that happen. So how do you then have a conversation with someone and share maybe like the impact that something has had on you and still maintain a professional relationship? Because it is important to, you know, share that impact um, and feel heard and validated in what's happening and going on. Um, but none of us can force an outcome with someone else. I couldn't be like, Martine, I'm so upset with you. You know, apologize to me right now. Because that just instantly makes people be like, no, I was right. You were wrong, right? Like, it just kind of perpetuates that cycle. So talking with people through um, really low-conflict ways of how to have conversations like that, of how to share, you know, hey, when this thing was said, I'm not sure if this was the intent, but here was how this came across. And I'm hoping we can have a conversation about that and how can we move forward? So do you ever, do you ever get any issues where it's bigger than you? I think you kind of, that, that you hear something, you go, Oh my goodness, this is something that I can't handle. How do you, how would you deal with that? If you were a supervisor if it's bigger than something that you can't resolve. So there might be some place to have, a, I mean, you're an ombud, so you have some more resource, but if, if I were to give you some advice to, you know, your, the general audience of, if it becomes a bigger problem, how, what are the steps and what do you do? What would you do in those kind of situations? Sure. Like if a supervisor came in and was like, I've got this maybe climate issue in my department and like, how do I deal with this? I think there's a lot of things that, um, supervisors can do. And it kind of just depends, again, on like what is good for them. So, um, and what, just like you said, right, like what resources are available to them. So um, they could do some sort of climate survey as maybe a starting point to be like, what what's going on? Like, where are we at? The challenge with that is who's going to do that survey? Who has access to the results? Um, is it truly anonymous like if 
like say perhaps we as the ombuds program were to do that, that would give people the opportunity to um, know that again, it's confidential. We um, would take information um, and make sure that it was de-identifiable. So, you know, thinking through if you're a supervisor, if I want to do a survey just as a starting point, maybe see, is there another office on campus? Like could HR help um, with something like that to, to make it as confidential as possible or private as possible? Um, you could have a facilitated conversation with the group to talk through um, like where things are at, how you can move forward, generate some ideas for how to improve things. Um, and just like I was kind of mentioning before, right, it's important to validate what has happened so that people can feel heard. Um, but trying to be forward thinking um, and generate, okay, this is where we seem to have stumbling blocks. Like communication is typically one of the biggest areas, right, that people have stumbling blocks. And that can be in a lot of different ways, right? Do you know what expectations are? Um, how are meetings sent out? Are there agendas? Um, like all sorts of things around communication, right? So what are the expectations for everyone? Um, and where can you clarify some of those processes? Do you have an expectation that employees respond to everyone within 24 hours of receiving an email, even if that's just to say, hey, great question, I'm not sure, let me get back to you, so that people feel heard, um, or they know that, you know, they didn't send an email off into the void. So um, trying to, if you were to do a facilitation, trying to be forward thinking about like, what are some, you know, standard things that we could kind of just agree to, like, these are the things that we're going to um, try and fix going forward, or at least I'll be on the same page about. You could also do um, a community agreement exercise where, again, you bring everyone together and say, what are, what are our, um, you know, behaviors of practice? Like, do we value all showing up on time for meetings? Um, do we, again, value like responding to emails in a certain amount of time? Um, do we value going to happy hour? Um, whatever those values are, kind of setting down community agreements and then making sure that you review them every once in a while so that it's not just something that you create and then kind of check the box. Like, well, I did that, we're done, um, can be helpful making sure that you send that to new employees and just revisit it every once in a while. Do these things that we agreed to still make sense? Are they still things that we um, uphold or do we need to make some edits and tweaks here and there? Hey, I'm going to ask you this question. I know that you probably are like, uh-oh. Um, have you had a situation where you worked in an organization where you're getting the same complaints about the same person? whether it's a whether it's and like you said it can be systemically like you're getting complaints you just kind of address it like systemically this is what's going on but there's one person in charge of that system and so you keep getting kind of complaints out of that department or if you get complaints about like an, a particular employee with an organization if you get a lot of those complaints 
and I know that it's confidential. What do you do in those kind of situations if you have like a ton of complaints about one particular person or one system, but you know it's a problem, you work for that organization, but you know you have to address this problem. What do you do? Sure. So as ombuds, and I will also say it kind of depends on the ombuds and where they work, right? Um, and the reason I say that in in different areas of ombudsing, they, they practice different ways, right? So for, um, let's say, a medical ombuds, like someone who works in the health field, those ombuds are more advocates where I like do not advocate for anything. Again, I present options, that sort of thing, um, and don't advocate for any person and or process. Someone who is ombudsing in the medical field is there to be an advocate for people. So if you're ever going through something um, health-wise, like let's say at a hospital or something like that, and that hospital has an ombuds, you can reach out to that person and be like, okay, this is going on. I don't know what to do. Can you help? And if you have a complaint about a specific person, they could potentially do something with that. I say potentially because that is a whole area of ombudsing I admittedly know very little about. Um, in the type of ombudsing work that I do, um, we have a practice called upward feedback. And so that addresses kind of what you were talking about, right? Where if there's a person um, or policy of concern that people have, you know, continually brought up, um, there is a way for us to give upward feedback. And again, we try to do things in like the lowest conflict way possible, um, whether that, and it depends on the situation, right? So like huge, huge uh, disclaimer that it depends on the situation, um, whether we would, you know, potentially go directly to that person um, to say, hey, we've had some, you know, quite a few visitors come in um, with some concerns that we want to just gently share with you. Um, we'd be happy to work with you, that sort of thing. We might go to a supervisor, de again, depending on some of the complaints. Um, if it's some sort of policy or like systemic concern that people are complaining about or have concerns about, um, we might go to whoever is in charge of that like policy or practice um, for the organization. So it kind of just depends on a few things, like how many people are we getting and like what kind of time frame, um, And then what's the appropriate path forward? Again, if someone, you know, if it can be handled low conflict by just going directly to that person, we'll try that. The challenge is, again, we can't force any sort of outcome, right? So we can share, hey, just to let you know, you know, we've had these concerns or we just want to let you know that we're seeing this trend and we want to provide this upward feedback. Um, but it's up to whoever, you know, we're going to, to decide whether or not they want to make any changes. Um, so we're merely there as like a vessel to kind of funnel that feedback. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Do some people get frustrated that you can't do more? And do you get frustrated that you can't do more when you see a problem? I mean, in your own process is like, oh man, I wish I could, I could do more. And, and do some people say, what's the purpose of having an ombuds? 
I think sometimes people do get frustrated, but I think um, I think that might just be that they don't understand the nuances of our job, which again are admittedly hard to describe in you know a like ten second soundbite. Um, so I think if someone comes in thinking I want you, Sarah, to you know like charge in and fix this, I can't do that. Like that is. Um, not my role. I'm here to help the visitor determine um, their path forward. We do trend tracking um, and we have annual reports. Um, annual reports are um, very common in the ombuds field. So you can, you know, look at some of those trends um, that have been available. But yeah, I do think people get frustrated maybe if they just don't understand like what our purpose is. Um, and do I get frustrated? Sure. I'm human. <laughs> you know, like you see, I think it's, um, I think anyone who like sees something going on that could be fixed and you're like, let's do better. Sure. It's challenging, but, um, but I appreciate that again, there are many things going on that I don't know and I don't have, I'm not privy to, I don't have access to, nor should I, that's not, um, you know, we're here to help our visitors. So I understand that as well. What's the most challenging part of your job? <sighs> that is a tough question. I think, like, I love helping visitors. I don't think that is challenging at all. I think the most challenging part is when something hits like close to home and it's just, that's a long day for me. Like if someone has um, a concern or is dealing with something that maybe I've dealt with before in my own personal like working history, um, then at the end of that day, um, it's just a little more exhausting, right? Um, to think, oof, like that brought up some things <laughs> or um, that was, I know what they're going through and that's tough. That's, I think the hardest part are some of those days. What's the best part of your job? Um, honestly, like I love helping people. There's so many times when I'll get done with a meeting and people will say, thank God I have options. I didn't know what my options were. Like, thank you so much. And they're just so appreciative of just like first having the opportunity to go to someone who, you know, isn't going to share that information with anyone else um, and is just a kind of safe sounding board for what's going on. Um, and then to know what options they have when they come in feeling like this is overwhelming. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. And even if they leave not knowing exactly what path they're going to take to think, okay, at least I know what my options are at this point, that makes people feel better. And that makes me feel better. Like that's why I got into this job. How long has the ombuds profession been around and why was it developed? Okay. Great question. It's quiz time. You're quizzing me now. <laughs> um, so ombuds is um, a term that means ear to the people and it was started. Oh, I'm going to butcher this and I apologize in advance to all of my ombuds <laughs> professional friends. Um, it was started 
you know, sometime I think in the 1800s, so don't quote me on that. Um, it was started a very long time ago. In the U.S., it started much more recently, I want to say in the like 60s or 70s, um, and has kind of evolved since then. There are ombuds, again, in all sorts of different types of fields, um, higher education, um, K-12, um, public sector, Coca-Cola, CVS and Twitter used to have ombuds, but they both um, have recently shuttered their programs. Um, there's, so there's oh, Pinterest has a ombuds program. There's many private companies that have ombuds. Um, the government has quite a few ombuds as well, like National Forest Service, NIH, um, lots of government ombuds. And those ombuds are a little more investigatory in nature. Because um, if you think about government jobs, like they're like people can potentially report things to them. Um, so lots of different types of ombudsing out there and opportunities for people either to seek help um, or if they're interested in the ombuds profession um, to find something that might appeal to them. Sarah, so, so I guess the, the question I have is, and it was a good answer. I wasn't like trying to pressure you on, on like yeah, trying, yeah. Try, yeah, trying to find an absolute date because that would be difficult. Um, I guess the question is, um, or my follow-up question would be, did they create this ombuds position to help resolve issues, I guess, at a lower level uh, prior to it going to human resources? Is that how this developed? Yeah, again, so like the term ear to the people, right, um, is kind of what that refers to, is that it's there, like you said, as an opportunity to be there for people, to know what their options are. I know I'm a broken record, but to know what their options are before people decide to take any sort of formal action. Because sometimes people, like you said, with like the HR reference, right? People might not want to go to HR or um, like if their students might not want to go to a dean of students office or something like that and kind of um, go a very formal route before they know what their options are or to see um, what potential outcomes might be. Um, so yeah, they the hope there um, and um, I believe the studies have shown and there's um, research out there that um, we help reduce conflict, we help um, reduce um, lawsuits and, you know, resolve conflict again at that lower level. How can, if I'm in an organization, how can I find out if I have an ombuds? Because I know a lot of times people attend the university or they like, I, I, I was aware they had ombuds at, at hospitals, but I wasn't aware if all of the hospitals had them or some of them had them. How do people go about finding out if there's an ombuds in the organization they work for or it's an organization they're having difficulty with, how would they find that out? Sure. Um, I would honestly just recommend Googling it because that's the best way. Um, there is an ombuds blog, um, which I believe is just called the ombuds blog. And they that blog is fantastic because they have um, 
an incredible amount of like links um, and things like that. And it's broken down. You can use the tabs that are broken down um, by different sectors to find out um, if maybe somewhere where you're at has an ombuds. Um, it's run by an ombuds um, actually from the University of Southern California. He's fantastic, um, but he's doing it all on his own and is just committed to ombuds work. Um, so that is an option, but again, just Googling it um, because not all hospitals have it, not all companies have it. Um, it's something that I think is, you know, slowly picking up steam. Um, and I think I'm seeing more and more companies have ombuds. There's also, if you have a company and are interested in having an ombuds, there are ombuds programs out there um, that you could contract with for, um, you know, part-time services or like have a contract with so that if you don't want to have someone like me who like works in-house, you could have that contract with them so that your employees could still have um, access to an ombuds. So lots of options out there. What kind of expectations would you give somebody before they went into an ombuds so that they're not so that they have an idea what to expect when they go in there like like you said i think some people when i first heard about ombuds i was like oh this is a person that can resolve all my problems i think that's what it gets out there is that they can step in and resolve all those problems i know that's something that you have to overcome i think all ombuds persons have to deal with that what should be the expectation when you go in there great question i think um just going in with the understanding that they're there to listen to you and to hear what's going on and that they're going to provide you with some options that you probably haven't thought of um, and that it's visitor determined. So it's up to you as the visitor how you want to proceed, that it's your choice um, going forward. So they're going to um, hopefully have some things that you're like, oh, I didn't know about this policy or I didn't, you know, think through um how having a conversation in this way could maybe help. I thought it was too overwhelming, but you know what? And now I feel okay about it. Um, so they'll just give you options. Um, and I think having that expectation going into it, like you said, and not thinking they're going to fix everything or they're like going to be my champion going forward um, are healthy expectations. Yeah, thank you for that insight. I think one of the things that you brought with me and in our conversations um, was the importance of understanding policy. And I, I really like that. And one of the things that you were saying, I, I don't know if you can expand on that a little bit, that people have to understand that many times there's already policies out there. You just got to get to those policies to make sure that um, the individuals that are involved with that issue, maybe those policies can rectify the situation can you expand that a little bit? Yes. So that's something I talk with visitors about, like on either side of a conflict, right? So, um, so sometimes people will come in and they're like, I've got this thing happening and I don't know, like, like, let's say they're dealing with something that's challenging, you know, coming at them. Um, and they're like, I don't know how to deal with it. One of the first things that I'll ask or say is, does your department or unit have a policy around this? Because you might already have that. Like you might already have that in place, um, which then would 
solve this problem and we might like that might be it. like we might not have to go any further than that right um and i think people don't think through that sometimes slash again you don't know what you don't know um so starting there and asking do you know if your department has a way to handle this so like if you martine had um a problem with an employee that you were like, I don't know how to handle this. Like, let's take HR out of it. Do you have a policy within your department that could remedy this? Because great, let's look at that. Um, I also think people, again, don't know what's out there. So sometimes people are told, hey, this is how we do things. And don't necessarily gently push back and or ask follow-up questions like is this policy or is this practice um and there's a big difference there um i also have to personally say like because i worked so long in student conduct policy is very much where i'm comfortable um and asking those types of questions um and kind of digging into like what policy says so trying to determine is this policy or is it's practice because if it's policy okay we've got a different conversation but if it's practice there's room for negotiation right that's not something that's set down anywhere um we maybe have some more wiggle room so um you know determining where does it if you're being told something can you point me to where it says that this is the the course that i have to take I, I love what you just said. So can you explain what's the difference between policy and practice? And then what if they conflict? How do you yes. deal with that? Yeah, so policy is going to be something that is like written down somewhere. It should be um, hopefully easily um, accessible to people, um, like on a website or something like that, um, or given out like when an employee starts or a student starts or something like that, right? Um, but it should be accessible somewhere, um, not just hidden away in a drawer and something that we pull out being like, you violated this policy. I'm sorry, how was I supposed to do that? Like that's, um, that's not realistic. So policy is something that is written down, has um, guidelines, potentially has um, consequences and um, an appeal process. Um, because people are afforded due process rights. Um, so policies are going to look very different. Practice is just typically more verbal, right? Like, hey, Martine, this is what we've always done. This is how you do this. Um, it might be a document that someone has somewhere, but that's not, if it's not published somewhere, um, that might just be an internal document of how things are done probably you're probably looking at a practice and not a policy and what if they when someone so basically what you're telling me i want to make this make sure i got this right if somebody's doing something practice wise and you may be having an issue with that practice you can negotiate with that boss or that organization however if that negotiation or they don't feel comfortable with that, they can rely upon the policy 
to make sure those things um, are equal in some in some that match up in some way. Because if they don't, then you you might have to gently push back. What is a way you can gently push back that doesn't cause conflict? Sure. So <clears throat> I think to be fair, any type of pushback, people are going to be resistant to, right? Like, let's just own that anytime someone is hearing, um, hey, I actually think this, or um, actually you did this wrong, or I don't, you know, which I would never recommend someone says as bluntly as that, right? Um, but anytime you're, you're, you're pushing back a little bit, that, that's just inherently, that's conflict, right? I think there are gentle ways that you can do that. Um, I think with the policy versus practice question that you asked, right, um, about if they, like if it's, um, how did you phrase that? If they ask if it's a practice, you can ask, right? It's perfectly acceptable to ask hey, can you just out of curiosity, can you let me know, like, is this a policy somewhere? I want to make sure that I'm educating myself. Um, I want to make sure that I am um, operating or acting in, in cohesion with this policy. Um, if someone responds and they're like, we don't have a policy, okay, then, then you're talking about a practice, right? Then, like you said, there's room for negotiation there. So, okay, it sounds like this is perhaps a practice. Um, is this something that we can talk about as there's no policy in place? If you can find maybe a similar policy at wherever you work that you could point to like, hey, it looks like over here, this is done, that might help you um, as well. So lots of different potential paths forward there. I'm gonna move on to another subject that's near and dear to your heart. You're, you're, you're big disability advocate um, in your personal time. Um, how did you kind of get into that? And I know you're very passionate about it, but can you talk about some of the things that, why you're so passionate about it, and some of the things that we can do to make sure that, that all of us are more sensitive to people that have disability issues? Yes. So I got, um, <coughs> excuse me, first interested um, or I think thinking about uh, disability rights when I was an undergrad. My parents were both disabled um, with um, some pretty bad arthritis. And when they would come to visit me on campus, um, parking like where I lived was incredibly far away. Um, and so coming to visit me was something that they couldn't do because they were disabled and they didn't have um, disability plates at the time. It's actually what um, made them seek getting disability um, handicap plates so that they could visit me. But it's something that I started to notice then, like how challenging it can be for people who are disabled to navigate the world. Um, in my personal life, personally, um, I became disabled um, about seven or eight years ago um, with a back injury. And I have also recently found out that I have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which um, combined essentially just mean I have a lot of joint pain 
um, all the time. And while I am um, currently mobile and able to um, walk, there are many people with other stamos who um, use walking aids and or end up using um, wheelchairs um, due to the like pain just in your joints and your body. Um, and so it's just something that has been on my mind for a long time. Um, I think you see, you see different challenges in different areas, right? So while I personally have mobility issues, one of the biggest examples that I typically give to people in thinking about disability rights is how many times have you ever been in a meeting in a, you know, big off like meeting space, boardroom, uh, ballroom, et cetera. And has someone gotten up in front of the room and said, I don't need to use the microphone. Everybody can hear me, right? What that's doing is forcing someone who potentially has a disability, a hearing disability, to disclose to the whole room that, um, that yeah, they need that microphone. And so that's one of the examples that I give. Um, it's a small example, but one of the biggest things, um, you know, that I talk with people about is just make the assumption, make the assumption that people are disabled, make the assumption that people are going to need the microphone. Um, they're going to need information about how to access um, the building maybe that you're having a meeting in, um, where accessible parking is, um, and things like that. Don't force people to ask for it on their own, just give it. Because for someone who's disabled, having that information given without having to disclose to someone, hey, I'm disabled, I would love to attend this meeting, can you let me know, you know, these things, right, um, means a lot. And being, I've heard this said, and I agree with it, being able-bodied is not the norm. At some point in everyone's life, everyone will be disabled, whether that's temporarily, if you, you know, injure yourself, break a limb, um, et cetera, um, or have something, you know, life-altering happen to you. Um, how, how about uh, such as age? No, <laughs> right. And I think we've had this conversation is that um, not only can you get injured or athletes that have, or you've, you've seen great athletes that, that are playing a particular sport and they, they're permanently injured or, and so you can be healthy one day and then the next day not be. So the issue of, of, um, you know, I was talking to a doctor one day and I asked him, you know, he was saying to me, everyone is going to be disabled at some point. <laughs> it's just the way life is. And even if you go through your entire life at certain age, you're going to be disabled. So I think it's really important for everybody to understand that all of us should have some empathy and think about those kind of issues. And, you know, I never even thought about, and that's what I want to ask you too, Sarah, about, I love the example you gave because I think I've heard that happen where they say, Hey, you know, the mic doesn't work. Uh, can everybody hear me? And I can tell you, there's been many times I've been in the back of the room. I could hardly hear that person. It has nothing to do with the disability. It's just that it, I, if it's bad for me, I can imagine if someone has a disability. So, and the same thing goes with, you know, in terms of how close, how close you sit or how far back it sets back and not having screens up so people can see. 
one of the things I, um, if, if you can bring up a few other examples of things that people automatically assume, I think one of the times we talked about that for like class participations or participations in activities, many times people automatically assume that everyone's going to be able to do that activity or get to that place in a timely manner. How does that impact you as a student or somebody that's trying to accomplish something? How does that make you feel if you cannot access those things? And why is that a disadvantage? Absolutely. So I'll share um, a different example. So being disabled and trying to navigate different um, disability processes at different places that I've worked um, has been a challenge. And there are lots of studies out there about how people don't want to disclose because of how challenging some of those processes can be. Um, one small example, I wasn't even trying to seek an accommodation. I had started a new role um, and I had reached out to a contact that I had at HR and I could see like the building that I was working, but there were multiple entrances. And so I didn't know where I should park versus what entrance I should go into and what the closest would be to wherever my office was going to be, my new office. Um, and I started reaching out a week or maybe two weeks ahead of time. It's been a while since this happened, so I don't remember the exact timeline. Um, but I tried reaching out and just said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm disabled. I'm just curious, like, what is the best entrance um, to come in? And I didn't hear back from that person for a few days. Um, so I try again, like, hey, just try again. I, it, it's again, been a minute. I can't remember if they either didn't know or I ended up asking a different HR person. I think I ended up, ended up asking a couple different HR people and they didn't know. And I eventually had to ask my supervisor like the day before I was supposed to start because I didn't hear back and I didn't get that information. I did not want to disclose to my supervisor um, that information. And I was essentially forced to because I couldn't figure out like what door would be the closest to um, my office. And it's tiny things like that, right? Like tiny things that again, for an able-bodied person, you wouldn't think of it. You'd go, you'd park, you'd wander around the building. You'd be like, that's okay. I'll come early. I will make it work. Right. For me, if I had to, if I parked on like the full wrong side of a very, very large building and wandered around until I found my new office, I would have been in so much pain at the very start of my first day of a brand new job. And like, that's not how I want to start. Right. Um, so there's very small things like that, that I think can, we can do better. Um, even the interview process, right. Um, I've again, been in higher ed for a very long time, have job searched, you know, have worked different positions, um, I've had two places of the multiple places that I've, you know, interviewed with over the course of my um, career, two places that have made it lovely, who just asked like, hey, we'd like to invite you for this in-person interview. What accommodations do you need? 
I didn't disclose anything. They just automatically asked. And I think it's little things like that, um, that again, to someone who's disabled, make a huge difference. Just make the assumption that people are going to need things. Um, and it can make a big difference because trying to find things out on your own, asking a million different times, um, not having agendas or a map um, or things like that are very challenging and and draining. It makes you not want to participate in things. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you that. Do you, does it seem like sometimes what when you ask for accommodation sometimes because they don't the, you know one organization or a group doesn't ask you or um, if you require accommodation does it seem like some organizations or some places that you would assume were that took care of these kind of things that you get kind of push up push back or run around trying to get something resolved that would typically be like you said in some organizations a lot easier then you then you go to other organizations and it's a, as if they're almost put out that you're asking. Yes, absolutely. Like some places, like I said, have it down and are like, you know, we're just going to make the assumption and what do you need and how can we help? Love it. Um, like that example that I gave, right, of starting a new job and just needing to know the entrance that I would go into. That, again, is draining. And it's not, it's not how you want to start a new job thinking, okay, I've now had to disclose this to how many people and not getting help. It's incredibly disheartening. Um, and yes, to feel like you're, you know, being like punted from place to place instead of one person being like, you know what, let me figure this out. Or I get it if people genuinely can't answer those questions. Um, and I, you know, potentially would need to go to a different department. I understand that. Um, Again, I do conflict resolution. Like, I'm not unreasonable. Um, but the impact on someone who's disabled, like, yep, it, I think what people also don't understand is it's not just this one moment, right? It is moment after moment with organization after organization. And even, um, like, in my personal life, right, um, trying to navigate restaurants hair providers, I get my nails done. So like all these different places where people don't have information about what is your building like? Do you have stairs? Do you have an elevator? Do you like, you know, um, do you have pictures of the inside and outside of your building? Anything you can do as a business owner or as an HR person, as a supervisor, like whatever you can do, to post pictures to help make the assumption that people are disabled is so beneficial, again, to people like me, to anyone else who's disabled, because we have to do an inordinate amount of homework before we go places. One of the things that you brought to me, Sarah, in the past is like words, like words have power, right? And sometimes you were, we, were, we had a general conversation about this and you said, you know, sometimes even the way people write an email, they assume you're able body, even though that person you're, you're, you're speaking with them to address an, an ADA issue, but even their response verbally or in the email 
doesn't almost or it just kind of minimizes the disability how can people avoid doing that um i appreciate you sarah because you'll always you'll have a conversation with me and say i don't think that this person knew how they were coming off but this is good for everybody because i think it's a good reminder because when you're able-bodied you're you're assuming all the time so even when you're typing these things out you're assuming that that person can do this particular thing or you think that you're being sensitive but you're really actually being insensitive how can people avoid doing that i great question and yes that is very challenging um talking with people or getting emails or um, having conversations with people where they make um, those statements. And the biggest thing people can do is stop making assumptions, right? What is um, easy and or accessible for you as an able-bodied person is not easy or accessible for everyone. Even if like I, and again, not wheelchair bound, I can walk. I have an invisible disability. If you looked at me, you would not know um, that I have a disability. So don't just look at someone and assume, great, they can do all the things. You don't know that. Age doesn't play into it, right? Um, yeah, just don't make the assumption. Um, that because you're seeing someone and or talking with someone that they can do all the things that you can and or participate in the same way that you can. Instead, just make the assumption that, hey, let's see what we can do to help you. And I guess this leads to the other question, which is if I have if I have a disability or I know someone else that has a disability, and and I know some people give up. I mean, some people that have disabilities, they're trying to get accommodations or they felt left they feel left out of a process or you know, whether it's a class or you know, a, a job function. How does that disabled person or people that advocate or want to advocate for that person can advocate for them in a way that they don't, that the person you're advocating for doesn't feel like that. You don't want to offend them in any way at the same time, because you really don't understand everything at the same time. But how do you help somebody deal with those issues in a, in a healthy way in order to resolve an issue or support somebody? Sure. I think first knowing you may not be able to resolve it. Right. I think being a support system um, by just listening and being there for them, um, and listening to what they're saying. Right. So if they're like, um, no, I got this. Like, I appreciate that you're here, that you're, you know, trying to help advocate, but, um, I feel comfortable going forward on my own or trying my own paths. Like, listen to that. I think, um, if they ask for help, or they're like, I am overwhelmed by this. I don't know where to start. I don't know what my resources are. You can find resources. I think just checking before you do anything, check in with someone, right? And ask them, what do you want? Um, because it is incredibly personal and private. Um, and someone might not be comfortable 
again, the research, right, about people choosing not to seek accommodations because of how challenging some of the processes can be and frankly how invasive they are, right? Um, some of the accommodations processes I've been involved in um, have involved many people um, and they're processes where, you know, people are frankly pulling apart your medical history, which I mean is a whole other topic, right? Um, and determining whether or not you can or cannot either participate in some way or like need the accommodation that you're asking for. And it feels like, um, you know, this whole very real, weird form of like medical gaslighting that you're like, what did I, how did I step into this? Like, so it can bring up a whole lot of issues for people that they might not be ready to deal with or like have someone else deal with. Like they might just, need to take things at their own pace yeah i think sarah one of the things you brought up that's particularly frustrating is is when you're explaining that you have a certain need or someone is explaining they have a certain need and that person has only spoken with you on the phone or via email and they come back and they say well we got you we're going to do this this and this for you but it's not really anything that's going to help with that disability <laughs> it's not anything that it wouldn't be presented to somebody that's able-bodied already. <laughs> so it's almost like what was the purpose of emailing or notifying you of this disability because you really haven't done anything. Or and push back. Like the other thing that I've encountered too um, in seeking an accommodation um, from an employer is you know, tell us more, like we need more information from your doctor. And, you know, that kind of invasiveness is like, you're not me, you're not my doctor. Like, can we not just trust that like my, me and my doctor know a lot more about my medical history than you who either work in HR or maybe like an operations field if they need to like do something like building wise or parking or something like that, right? If there's like mobility issues or um, like if they need to purchase something, like guaranteed, I know more about what's going on with me and my doctor does than you do. So like, can you just accept what was submitted? Yeah, I think it's, it's frustrating because it, it puts people that have a disability at a significant disadvantage. Um, in terms of receiving services, in terms of receiving an education, in terms of a million different things. And I think people don't realize the impact that they're having on so many people because, like you said, the vast majority of people are not able-bodied. So I, I, it's interesting because, like you said, it makes it so that everybody kind of wants to hide some of the physical issues or the mental health issues they have because of the pushback they get back. Um, is there any advice that you would give anybody if they were trying to obtain a service that they're getting a considerable pushback from, whether it's a college or a university or a job or whatever, or, or accessing public services, I guess? Um, that is a great question. I think just know your rights, like know what the ADA says um know what a reasonable accommodation is it takes i think a lot of homework um on the 
person who's seeking the accommodation, I think it takes sometimes a lot of homework on their end to know what the law is, what um, is available for accommodations, um, which you can easily Google. But still, that's um, like one more thing for someone to do. But I think knowing that and coming kind of armed with like, just like we talked about before, right? What's the policy? What is um, also what is the policy at either your place of employment or your place of um, school? Like knowing those things ahead of time can be incredibly helpful. Well, Sarah, I get. To, I'm going to start finish up with my last final questions. These are going to be quick, rapid fire questions. Okay. We'll be ready. You ready? Let's do it. Okay. Favorite music? Um, alternative rock. Uh, favorite guilty pleasure food wise? Um, I like chips. I like anything salty. <laughs> um, favorite place to travel to? Um, I miss the Upper Peninsula of Michigan really bad, so I'm going to say that. Dream trip? Uh, dream trip. Egypt. Why? I've always loved Egypt ever since I was a kid. Um, what are your future goals? Um, okay, big goal. I would love to write a book someday. Um, and honestly, I feel like I've already nailed my professional goals. I'm in my dream job. I'm super happy where I'm at. So um, educationally, I would love to get some more degrees. So yeah. I know you said you want to get like two or three doctoral degrees, correct? Yeah, I want to get another doctorate after this one that we're both in. I would like to get an MFA in writing. So we'll see if any of that plays out. <laughs> and what do you want to be remembered for when you're no longer on this earth? Um, I hope my kindness and um, helping people. Well, you help a lot of people. You've helped a lot of people already, and you're, you're going to continue to do so. And thank you so much for being on, Sarah. I really, really appreciate it. Um, you're just, you have a great spirit about you. You, it's very evident when people meet you that you're dedicated to helping people. And um, what you do is amazing, and you always want to be a conflict uh, solver. And I really, really, really appreciate you being on today. Um, I've learned a lot. I know our guests have learned a lot. And just thank you for being on here. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Till next time, keep learning, everybody. And we'll have another great guest on. Thank you.